If ads give you a pain in the nads or the nadettes, join us now on our new subscription model on Apple. It's all ad free. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time and John is looking at me down the uh, lens and I think he's probably a little bit jealous, it must be said. Well, Mac, you're, you're sitting on a boat for Christ's sake. I mean... You are Jason of the Argonauts. <laughs> well, and speaking of, your Jason of the, uh, speaking of Jason of the Argonauts, this is exactly where I am, John. Yeah. I'm in a place called Gutchek, which is in the south coast of Turkey. So people might know Marmaris and Bodron. And this is a place about another 100 miles towards Anatolia, right? Towards, yeah. towards Syria, actually. And I am in the middle of nowhere, a tiny little cove. I mean, it's... I'm doing a gig here and mates of mine said, look, if you're doing the gig in Istanbul, why don't you take a few days down here? And it is kind of glorious. It kind of kind of slightly beats the old boat in the Shannon, you know, in the the middle of the pissing rain. (laughs) But all is good. All is good. I've I've been on my little odyssey. We were, you know, in Gothenburg. Okay. And the podcast from Gothenburg is coming Thursday, isn't it? Thursday. Thursday. And we did our Inish Man Odyssey. So it's been a whole lot of things, a whole lot of things. But I'm out here. And again, John, the most impressive thing I always think about traveling is the conversations you have with people. So Turkey is, with respect to the war in Ukraine, right? Turkey is the biggest NATO power in the region. But it's also bought from Russia, amazingly, yeah. missile systems. So it's kind of equivocating between the two. It's also trying to be the broker in the entire thing. And when you talk to Turks, you realize the deep, deep history, the ambivalence towards Russia, the fact that basically the Ottomans and the Russians were fighting for hundreds of years. Yeah. And yet the significance that Turkey is the only country that Russia is actually afraid of militarily because it's huge. It's the biggest army. And it's and it's it's heavily heavily militarized. In fact, up until Erdogan, the military was the major power here, and used to tend to come and have coups and have interventions and whatever. And actually, the military, John, protected the constitution, and the constitution was written by Ataturk, and it was an entirely secular constitution. Yes, right. Yeah. So the military were a force, ironically, for secularism against a increasing sort of. Islamic fundamentalist wing 
And now, of course, Erdogan is more fundamentalist than anywhere else. And my mates were telling me last night that the Americans initially supported Erdogan. He was their man because mm. he promised a sort of a middle way Islamic state. Not yeah. too fundamentalist, not too liberal, but just somebody, as the Americans say, somebody they could deal with. And now they can't. Well, he's now, trying to play all sides, isn't he? You know, he has this fractious relationship with Putin. Yes, he buys loads, as you just said, buys loads of military gear from him, almost as a finger to the, the states. Well, the amazing thing is, you know, Turkey is one of the longest serving members of NATO. And buying stuff from Russia was a complete uh, volfas. But I mean, what is what is fascinating here is also, for example, there are 4 million Syrian refugees in Turkey. There's a city up the road here called Gaziantep, where there's a yeah. million Syrian refugees. And the Turks apparently have allowed the Syrians to work. They just said, come on in and work. So there's lots of stuff going on here. It's been fantastic. Maybe this week we'll do a maybe more in-depth thing. Of course, for listeners on the economic front of things, Turkey's rate of inflation is out of control. The currency is collapsing. So there's all sorts of other stuff going on here. We actually might talk about that next week. But for what it's worth, I've done podcasts from worse places, John. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I can yeah, we sure have, actually. <laughs> I can certainly tell you that. I can certainly tell you that. But today I want to talk about, John, three or four things. One is... What is happening in Wall Street? Yeah. Why people's perceptions of interest rates have changed profoundly? What would happen in the United States if they had a interest rate crusade against inflation as they had in the late 1970s? We'll do a little bit of economic history. We might even touch on a artist that you quite like, Mr. Bruce Springsteen. Oh, yeah. We might even talk about the cultural significance of the movie Wall Street from the 80s and how it was spot on in terms of actually grasping what was going on in the States, then what would happen to interest rates here, and then what would happen if interest rates here went to, wait for it, 6%. And I'll explain why I'm talking about 6%. Strange things happen in economics. As Mr. Keynes was asked about changing his mind, he says, when the facts change, my man, I change my mind, what do you do? <laughs> And the facts on the ground are changing. So that's where we're going this week. Okay, Mark, let's start with the US. I mean, this has been the big story in all the newspapers, but one of the headlines in the Financial Times over the weekend was that the US stock market has suffered the longest streak of weekly losses in over a decade. So give us your take on that. What's going on? Well, it's, I tell you, it's a, it's a tricky one. So let's, 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 let's all break the whole thing down a wee bit, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so what you're finding is... This is the worst run in Wall Street in 10 years. So since the global financial crisis, number one, tech stocks in particular have been hammered, hammered, hammered for the last few months. So the ones that remember last year, they were always talking about your, your Netflix and these sort of things, right? These stocks yeah. have been absolutely hammered. All crypto, ironically, with the exception of Bitcoin, which seems to have held up, is all hammered. All those NFTs, remember the people buying NFTs the other day? <laughs> I told yeah. the other week. They've all yeah. gone to shit, okay? So what has happened, right? That's the question. What has happened in the last while? Now, you can say it's the war. You can say it's the global slowdown. You can say it's COVID in China, all those things. But what has actually happened is a massive, massive misreading of the Federal Reserve's intentions. So the Federal Reserve last Thursday 
raised interest rates by half percentage point. Sorry, misreading by who? By the financial markets. So this is a very okay. interesting story. So we pick it apart, right? So on Wednesday, the Fed increased interest rates by half a percentage point. So they're beginning this movement up off zero, up towards positive interest rates, right? The markets were prepared for a three-quarter rate increase. When that didn't come, the markets rallied, right? And then people said, hold on a second, hold on a second. We still have a massive inflation problem. So we've misunderstood what the Fed is doing. The Fed is what it's trying to do if you think it has a plan. And there's always a great, having worked inside central banks during a crisis, John, and uh, having seen what happened in Ireland during the financial crisis, there's always a profound weakness to assume that the people in the top know what they're doing. Yeah. Well, I I think that's fair enough, though. I mean, you have to have to trust somebody. And these are the so-called experts. Well, having worked inside uh, these things, I'll actually tell you a great story. Did I ever tell you the story about Kent Clark told me over a few gargles in Hong Kong many years ago? Kent Clark, I met him at the IMF annual bash in Hong Kong in 1997. He was a really funny guy, Kent Clark, right? And during the 1992 Black September, Black Wednesday, when Sterling collapsed, right? And George Soros speculated against Sterling. The perception was that the people who ran Sterling, the Bank of England, the British government, the British Treasury, knew what they were doing, right? Because that's what they said, right? That we're fighting for Sterling. Uh, Ken Clark was the Home Secretary at the time. A guy called Norman Lamont was the Finance Secretary. Oh, yeah. Uh, I can't remember. remember. Heseltine was involved there as well, maybe. Douglas Hurd was Foreign Secretary, etc. And John Major was the Prime Minister. And Ken Clark told me that the day that Sterling collapsed, right? Himself, Heseltine, Lamont, and Major were sitting around a transistor radio in the kitchen of number 10, (laughs) getting their information from BBC Radio 4. Can you imagine that? (laughs) And then then coming out onto the Beeb and saying, oh, don't worry, Sterling is fine, right? Same shit happened in Ireland when I was working the central bank. Remember I told you about the don't frighten the horses comment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sort of stuff. So, so that's like, it's like a feedback loop, that, isn't it? It's like a feedback loop. They they listen to what's been going on on the radio and then they go on the radio to reiterate. Uh, To tell the radio. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Round and round and round. (laughs) So be under no illusions that the Fed is full of geniuses who know what they're doing. That's the first assumption we should scotch, right? Yeah. It's full of normal human beings. Remember we had the interview a couple of weeks ago with the guy who wrote the book about looking at the Fed and Fed watching. He took all the notes. Mm. His name yeah. escapes. It's a very interesting book, right? It was called The Lords of Easy Money. Yeah. I mean, his analysis was very simple. These are just human beings doing a job in a weird world, which is so complex that nobody really understands. So that's the first thing. Second thing, though, to the extent that they do understand they have the power of policy. So consequently, they are very, very important. So initially, the financial markets thought, okay, the Fed is chilled about inflation. Then they reassessed it. They said, no, the Fed is not chilled about inflation. In fact, what it's signaling is long, long war against inflation, right? And Mm. financial markets just sold off, right? So Thursday, they rallied, but Friday, they sold off. And what the sell-off is showing is that there's a pattern of behavior here, which is that At every stage, they think there's good news, they reassess and they double down. And what they're really worried about is the recession that might be prompted by the excessive reaction to a rate of inflation that doesn't go away on its own. So Mm. 
There's two schools of thought on this, okay, on inflation. One is that inflation will go away on its own, which is that it's actually all to do with the pandemic. It's all to do with Ukraine. It's all to do with the temporary problem in China with respect to COVID. So what's happening is the Chinese are not making anything. Their manufacturing industry is closed down. That means lots and lots of cheap manufacturing goods that used to be made in China are not finding their way to America. Yeah. So there's tightness in the commodity market. As you saw, I think we just talked a little bit off air. John was asking me about the labor market. There's tightness in the labor market. The markets mm. are creating jobs, but the labor market is actually contracting. So there's a real sense of, hold on a second, what if this inflation rate we're seeing in America, and I'll give you the figures in a second, is permanent. If it is permanent, then you have a permanent increase in interest rates. A permanent increase in real interest rates means a permanent recession. And yeah. America goes into a tailspin. How do we know the difference between temporary? Because we've been talking about temporary now for a while. Yeah. And how do we know the difference then between temporary and permanent? Where, where, where's that line? No, that's the interesting. Nobody knows the difference between temporary and permanent because people who are assuming or hoping it's temporary just believe that over time, the war in Ukraine will stop. The panic in oil markets and gas markets will abate. And in fact, what will actually happen is energy prices will fall. Then food prices will fall. Once energy prices and food price falls, people's demands for wages will fall. So gradually what you'll get, this is the Philip Blaine approach, the chief economist of the ECB. Gradually yeah. what you'll get is inflation will come back down towards its target of around 2%. That's one view. The pessimistic yeah. view is, no, 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 what's going to happen is people are going to take food and energy price increase and say, hold on, man, I need a wage increase to cover my costs, yeah. right? Because yeah. everyone works off what we call like a fixed cost model. If your costs go up, you have to increase your price. If you're an employee, increasing your price means you demand higher wages. Then that gets into the system and wages start to rise and rise and rise. So they're the two schools of thought, right? And of course, the wages are under pressure to rise anyway because of the tight labor market, as you were saying. Yeah, because people, you know, so there's two, two ways wages rise. One is people demand it. And the other one is that employers have to pay it, not because people demand it, but to attract in people. Yeah, so it yeah. actually works both ways. So that's, that's the first thing. But what I want to do is say, if, for example, interest rates would have to rise to 6%, 7%, either in the US, a little bit higher, or a little bit lower in the EU, but that changes the game completely. So let's talk about that. Right. But I want to talk to you first about the last time we were here, because it's very important to look at history and see what happened in the past. The last time we were here was in the early 1980s, late 1970s, early 1980s. Very, very similar situation. You have a revolution in Iran. You have the Soviet takeover of Afghanistan. You have spikes in oil prices. Mm, you have an yeah. unpopular president in the United States who gets bogged down in the Iran hostages situation in the way in which Biden can clearly get bogged down in Jimmy Carter, you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Biden could get bogged down in the Ukraine. So there's lots and lots of similarities, okay? Federal Reserve at that stage, under a guy called Paul Vocker, who's actually not only the most hard ass central banker in the world, but maybe the tallest man in the world. He was <laughs> he was six <laughs> foot ten. Jesus. <laughs> it was absolutely enormous, right? He came in at the central bank and he says, We're gonna crush this inflation enemy because America with inflation is a weak America. He raised interest rates at their peak, John, to 22%. Like wow. People can't get their head around this. America had 22% in living memory. 
Now, what that did was it precipitated a massive, massive recession because anybody who was borrowed at any level went bust, number one. Yeah. Two, yeah. every company's balance sheet at 22% interest rates implodes if you've any debt, and all companies carry debt. Yeah. That's on the supply side. On the demand side, once you start to get people getting laid off, demand in the economy shrinks and you get this downward spiral. Maybe the best. And anyone way to look, with a mortgage would have been absolutely they were hosed, yeah, hosed, and the American housing market tanked completely, right? So they precipitated a rapid recession. Now, interestingly, probably the best way to look at this is to listen to culture, right? If you listen to Bruce Springsteen's album "The River," and I know you're a Springsteen fan, I, I, yeah, absolutely. It's a fantastic album, far from his best album, but it's a fantastic album nonetheless. Is it not one of his best? I thought all you know, there's, there's it. A, well, <laughs> you fellas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just listening. No, I'm just it, learning to. I'm listening to like Turkish K-pop here. That's my scene. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you see, the the, the river was a double album, and if it was a single album, it would have been a stunken album. But it was a double album, so I felt that there was a lot of kind of fillers in that. Not that fillers. Was, that that's unfair. But that, you know, weaker tracks. Yeah, but I suppose, well, was that a weakness in the early 80s to go for the double album? Because I remember that being a thing. Well, yeah, and because what it allowed as well was the gatefold album sleeve as well, which is a big thing, you know? Oh, right. So it was actually part of the experience of opening the thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you remember the most of the time, the band that released the most disappointing album, and everyone was expecting it to be amazing, was Sandinista by The Clash? which was Clash, a fucking yeah. triple album, right? <laughs> Bad enough having a double album. It was a triple album. And, you know, the, the Clash, I mean, the whole point of punk was your... Two-minute songs. Two-minute songs, three chords and the truth, right? Yeah, None yeah, of this yeah. big sprawling Sandinista Nicaragua. But the interesting thing was called Sandinista. Well, Sandinista was after the Nicaraguan government. And the Nicaraguan government in the early 80s was being financed by the Russians who were being buoyed up by oil. Do you remember all that? We talked yeah, about that a while yeah. ago. Daniel yeah. Ortega and all that sort of carry on. And it was catching the times. But if you go back to the river, the river was about blue collar Americans losing their jobs, losing that sense of their place in society, losing that stake in society. That comes kind of hot in the heels after Vietnam, where blue collar America paid the price mm. because rich guys like Donald Trump and Clinton and all those guys kind of, even though Clinton wasn't rich, but he was clever enough, bailed out and never fought. And George yeah. W. Bush and all those guys, right? Whereas the, it was actually white and black poor lads actually fought that war. So yeah, yeah. what was happening, you get this massive recession, right? American trade unions are crushed. The blue collar ethos of American manufacturers is crushed. And what happens is when the workers get back up off the canvas after the recession is over, they're in a much weaker position. And amazingly, John, since the early and mid 1980s, when you actually discount for inflation, the real wages of the average American worker have hardly risen. Whereas wow, yeah. the wealth of the top 1% or 2% has gone through the roof. Yeah. So what you had was during that period, you have the seeds of the inequality that we're seeing were sown because the American economy went from a manufacturing economy to what is called a fire economy, which is finance, insurance, and real estate. And actually... Again, cultural references number two in this podcast, John. It must be the Turkish air has me going this way. <laughs> Do you remember Wall Street, the movie? Yes, yes, yeah. The greed uh, is good. Gordon Gecko, yeah. Greed is All good. All that yeah. sort of, right. And you had Martin Sheen, 
yeah. who having having name checked uh, Vietnam a minute ago went from apocalypse now, which That's was at his best. True, true. He actually got a heart attack at twenty eight, shooting apocalypse now because they were doing so much drugs on set. <laughs> That's extraordinary. Yeah. That's extraordinary. But by the way, if anybody has about a spare three and a half hours this week, do watch Apocalypse Now, the full version with the crazy French legionnaires in it. Massive, really well worth it. It's a brilliant movie. It's brilliant. Yeah, I love it. But to get back to Wall Street, the conflict at the heart of Wall Street was between Martin Sheen, who was a trade union man, blue-collar worker. He was a an engineer or a mechanic in an airline company. That's right, yeah, yeah. And his son, Charlie Sheen, who was working for Gordon Gecko, who was Michael Douglas. Yeah. And at the time, the drama of Wall Street was that Gordon Gecko was a corporate raider. And they were creatures who were inspired by the recession and emerged in Reagan's deregulation, which was they would go after companies whose stock prices had fallen they would actually break those companies up, sell them off in individual bits and trouser the profit, right? Yeah. So there was a massive conflict at the heart of American economy between manufacturing base and these corporate raiders, right? The corporate raiders were emboldened by Reagan. The manufacturing base hated Reagan. And it's quite interesting, even though people thought that was like a Hollywoodization of yeah. the plot was actually very real. It was actually really, really well well-structured. So what I'm saying is America went through a profound, profound change as a result of a crusade against inflation, which was orchestrated from the very, very top. And you might say, John, that crushing the American trade union movement was not the unintended consequence of this. Was well, I was going doing- to ask you that, actually. You know, they, they crushed the trade unions in the States. Yes. But was that, was that intentional? Because at the same time, Thatcher was also crushing the trade unions in, in the UK and the miners in particular. It was completely intentional. In fact, the way in which Margaret Thatcher in the very early 80s stockpiled coal from Poland, right, ahead yeah. of the miners' strike, shows malignant intent. So what Thatcher I didn't did, know that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Thatcher stockpiled cheap Polish coal. Now, think about this. You remember Solidarnosc? Yes. 1982, Solidarność, okay, and there was a geezer called Jaruzelski, who was the yes. boss in Poland, who was basically a stooge of the Kremlin. The Poles needed hard currency as quick as they could get it in 1981-82 to try and wean the Polish population off their obsession with solidarity. So basically they were going to buy communism from them, buy another decade or two of the Communist Party. They needed hard currency. How could they get that? They could only get it by exporting what they exported. What they really exported from Poland was coal. Who bought it? Mrs. Thatcher, the arch anti-communist, Mrs. Thatcher. Wow. Bought the coal to stockpile the coal in order to have the coal when the miners' strike hit because she was going to precipitate it so that Britain wouldn't run out of energy. So it's amazing the way the the massive anti-communist Mrs. Thatcher Double standards, maybe. Did a deal with the madly communist Jaruzelski who suppressed the liberation movement that she always talked about, how people should rise up against communism. And in fact, she used the proceeds of that to suppress her own working class, which is kind of mad, right? That's incredible. Yeah. So, Didn't realize that about the coal. Go ahead. So, anyway. so you're talking about Thatcher. So I think with respect to Reagan, absolutely. It was a 
for the Republican Party, and particularly the Reaganite Republican Party, it was a welcome consequence of the recession in America to crush the trade union movement. Because the trade union movement then, John, was much more deeply aligned with the Democratic Party. So by crushing the trade union movement, they crushed the link, the umbilical link between working class people Mm. and the Democratic Party. And that forced the Democratic Party, ironically, to go to the right, which is why Clinton emerged as a sort of a triangulating centrist in 1992. But we digress. Yeah. We digress. But, 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 but actually, it's interesting, just on the, on the trade union point, that the trade unions now seem to be on the rise, particularly in places like Amazon and these, these new mega tech companies. Yeah. And there's a big rise, a big push towards unionizing those companies. By the way, I think we're actually going into an era of trade unionism in the West. I think that trade unionism is all about pricing power. So basically inflation is all Your about- Your friend Bernie would love this. My friend Bernard, Bernard, as I call him. <laughs> Bernard. In fact, we should have Bernie back on. I'll, I'll actually, I'll, I'll try and get in contact with him. But he, ironically, for a man who's on the wrong side of generations, I think he's on the right side of history. Yeah. That yeah. basically- we're talking about the end of a big 40-year cycle at the moment, John. So that 40-year cycle was that cycle we're trying to paint the picture of. The recession, the rise of the right, the rise of financialization in the global economy, all that sort of stuff, right? I think that's probably coming to an end. And the reason it comes to an end is all ideologies, deep within them, are the seeds of their own destruction. Mm. And the seeds of the destruction of this ideology we're talking about, which came about as a result of, or was kicked off by, this war against inflation, the seeds of its own destruction were inequality. So basically what happened is the economies grew, but they grew in a very unequal way. And as I was saying, therefore, it was all this trickle-down economics, yeah. but the rich just got far too much richer. So consequently, inequality is the framework through which the entire American political debate is now constructed. People call it culture wars, but the culture wars are part of the inequality. So for example, if the white working class had not been disenfranchised over the last four decades, they probably wouldn't be voting right. They'd be still voting left. Yeah, they probably yeah. wouldn't be voting radical. They'd still be voting for their own, for wage increases. There probably wouldn't be half as many of the deep culture wars you have in the United States as you have now. But that is the consequence of policy. The point is that when economic policy shifts, John, you tend to get massive long-term ongoing social and cultural consequences. And that's what we may be facing. Because right now, for the first time in 40 years, there is a real possibility of a global central bank jihad against inflation. And that comes right. back to our issue of the difference between core inflation and headline inflation and what's happening. So yeah, you just the, explain that briefly. So the difference between core and headline, right? So Core inflation is the rate of inflation when you strip out food and energy prices. And the reason you do that is they tend to be the most volatile. Because right. when energy prices spike up, food prices spike up. And the reason that energy prices tend to spike up higher than other prices is because small changes in supply have profound impacts on energy prices. So, mm. And they're changed by wars and you know these sort of things that you can't predict. Yeah. So when you take out energy and food, you get what's called core inflation, which is what central bankers look at. And I'll just give you the, the facts in America now. Headline inflation in America is running at 8.5% per year. Core inflation is running 
So it's still very, very high. It's all very well for central bankers to say, oh, they're just in core inflation and, 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 and headline inflation, but, but we pay headline inflation. Because yes, when we yeah, fill yeah. up our cars, yeah. we pay headline inflation. When we go yeah. to fill up our fridge with food, we pay headline inflation. So people don't give a damn about the difference between headline and core. What people want to okay. say is, is it costing me more this week than last mm. week? But policymakers give a damn because what they say is that core inflation is much more indicative of the underlying non-crisis rate of inflation, right? And then you see, and what drives that, John, are things like you were saying at the beginning of the labor market, yeah. wages. Because if you look out at about 60% of the cost of everything, or maybe 65% are wages. So if wages start to rise, then inflation starts to rise. Mm. But the other side is that if inflation's, if wages don't rise, people's real standard of living falls. So you have this constant tension at the heart of the inflation number. But just yeah. say American inflation stays at about 5% core, right? And bills 5 6%, right? What does the Fed do in that case? Now let's go back again to the 1970s and 80s. When the rate of inflation, core inflation, was at around 5 or 6%, the only way in which the Americans could bring the rate of inflation down was to have a real interest rate equivalent to the core rate of inflation. Now the real interest rate is the nominal interest rate, which is the interest rate we see, minus the rate of inflation. Okay. So if the core rate of inflation is 5%, in order to destroy inflation in the economy, you would have to have a nominal interest rate of 10%. 10%, John, right? Wow, yeah. Now that is just the back of the envelope economic theory, right? Now imagine that being the case in America. Or imagine even if we don't take 10%, imagine the rate of interest had to go up to 8% in America. You've a totally, yeah. totally changed world. Totally changed world. And the idea is that could happen. It's not a central case, but it could happen. Now, let's look at us. Yeah, that, yeah. If you go back to Europe, now, European inflation is quite, quite different, right? Because European core inflation is much, 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 much lower. So European headline inflation is now 7.4%, but our core inflation is 2.9. Oh, so okay. That, so that means that the wage pressures are not there in Europe. The capacity pressures are not there. The European economy is not performing like the American economy. We're at a totally different stage of the cycle. But the headline is so high because mainly of, because of Ukraine. The energy. Yes. Because of Ukraine, because yeah, yeah. we're so feckin' dependent. So, so the Americans yeah. aren't dependent on Ukrainian or Russian gas. So yeah. we're completely dependent on, on the Russians for energy. So our headline rate of inflation is way above our core rate of inflation. Now, the core rate of inflation is the rate of inflation the ECB is looking at. But as I said before, your average punter isn't looking at core. Your average punter is looking at 7.5% increase in the cost of living, right? And the question is, again, if the core rate of inflation in Europe remains high, and if the ECB decides that part of its mandate is to bring that down, right? And if the ECB were to raise the real rate of, I know this is kind of hard with reals and la la la, but just bear with me. If yeah, the yeah. ECB were to raise the real rate of interest to equal the core rate of interest, that would mean the European rate of interest would be about 6%. And that is something we haven't seen for two or three decades. Right? Wow, yeah. A 6% rate of interest by the ECB, so the ECB's lending rate, would mean 
an 8% mortgage rate in this country because banks in this country take around 2%. So just consider what would happen. And again, this is not the central case, but it's not that unlikely, right? So and this has gone from negative interest rates only a short time ago. Yeah, yeah. And the reason, of course, is that what you have is it's taken the economies a long time to get used to coming out of COVID, right? And bizarrely, a very strange thing happened in COVID. Because people weren't spending money on going out and cinema and all that sort of stuff, right? We spent money on manufacturing goods, which have to be made somewhere. So supply chains are much more important when you're buying manufacturing goods. That's the first thing. Then, of course, we have Russia and Ukraine, which has profoundly affected energy. And now we have this idea that manufacturing goods coming from China are not coming from China because they've closed down the economy because of their zero COVID policy. All those things come on top of all the money the central banks were printing, all the money the governments were spending to keep people idle but actually not revolutionary during the, the pandemic. It's all coming in this sort of perfect storm. Now, fascinatingly, I happen to think that inflation will abate, but I think the central bankers might panic because all their credibility is infused with this idea that they can control inflation. Now, if they do panic and become what they call hawkish, yeah. there is a chance that the ECB moves into a highly aggressive following the Americans, interest rate path. And the end point of that would be a mortgage rate in Ireland of around 7 to maybe even 8%, or could be 6 to 7%. Now, just think about how that would impact on our economy, our domestic economy. Yeah, I shouldn't think, actually. Well, just I'll give you a few figures, John. I'll give you a few figures, right? Latest central bank report in Ireland says there's 70 billion of loans outstanding on mortgages, right? So that's basically the mortgage book of Ireland is 70 billion, right? The Irish GDP is about 350 billion. So it's a big, big chunk of GDP. Huge chunk, yeah. 91% of that 70 billion is on people's houses. So it's not on buy to rent. It's not on investment properties. It's on your average punter's house. Yeah. 50% of that is on floating interest rates. So we're very different to the Germans and the French. We use floating interest rates, they use fixed interest rates. So for example, in Germany, if you buy a mortgage, right, you get a fixed 30-year rate and never changes. Really? Yeah. Wow. So you so you basically what you do is you buy the long end. So Germany's German banks lend to you for 30 years. They borrow also for 30 years for, against that liability. So consequently, you get a fixed rate for 30 years. Irish banks play the silly game, which is they borrow short and lend long. So basically they're borrowing from us the depositor. And then yeah. they're lending to us the mortgage holder, which means that we're on floating rates, which means that we're highly sensitive to changes in short-term interest rates. So about half of the Irish mortgage book would shift automatically. If and that's also compounded by the likes of Ulster Bank and all that leaving the Irish market. They've all left the Irish market, so there's no competition. There's only two banks in Ireland, right? Yeah. AIB and Bank of Ireland. So we're kind of back to where we were many, many years ago. <laughs> also, of the six this year, this last year, JM's generation took out 676 million of new mortgages last year alone, which is quite a lot, okay? But the average rate of those mortgages was 2.75%. The equivalent mortgages taken out in Germany and France today, the average rate is 1.3%. So Irish punters are paying twice on average. Shafted again. Shafted, right? So imagine a situation where interest rates rise very rapidly. 
if you had nominal interest rates going up to four or five percent, then you add that two percent on top, you're talking mortgage rates of close to seven. Yeah. Right. Now the consequences of that are phenomenal for a housing market that is already at crazy, crazy levels. Now the, the, the good side is that for many people hoping to buy a house, those sort of interest rates would cause house prices to fall dramatically. Right? Okay, right. Yeah. But yeah. the bad thing is for those who've just bought houses, it means they're in negative equity. So again, the thing about the, the economy, John, it's always a tension at the heart. You know, you know what I was talking about between the capitalists and labor, between the old trade unionists and, for example, the financial guys, the Gordon yeah. Geckos, between the people who just bought a house and the people who are just about to buy a house. It's always a tension, right? And the change in the rate of interest, which has been signaled by events over this weekend, which I think is still an extreme case, is still one worth considering because the implications are phenomenal. Why do you think it's an extreme case? Because why, most, why are you so optimistic? Because, John, I'm an optimistic sort of guy. You know me for many, many years. <laughs> you see my glass, the glass here? It's always, it's always half full. That's because you keep topping it up, Mac. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's water, John. It's water. It's early doors here. It's early doors. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Okay, just to come back to the other big news that's happening at the moment is the UK local elections. And in Northern Ireland, the Shinners wiped the floor with everyone. And yeah, now they, they are for the for the first time they are the biggest party in Northern Ireland, and possibly in the next general election in Ireland, they'll win. They'll walk through. So the Shinners I, will be the force to be dealt with. Well, I mean, the extraordinary thing, just to come back to the Northern Irish, if you look at the numbers now, the Shinners got twenty nine percent of the vote. Twenty nine percent. The DUP got twenty percent. So the biggest unionist party is nine percentage points behind them which is phenomenal, right? Yeah. We've done this before in the podcast. I've told you that I always believe that 
the move towards United Ireland is kind of inevitable based on demography and economics and all that sort of thing. I mean, the crazy thing now for the for the unionist parties is they're obviously they've moved dramatically to the right. Your man, the TUV, the traditional unionist voice did very well. So the unionists are doing, they're doing an Afrikaner. They're moving to the right <laughs> yeah. under threat. Actually, I was on TV with that guy once a couple of years ago. Oh, and- yes. I actually have a listen to this. Yeah, um, should there be a bank holiday for the Easter Rising in 2016, seeing as there's one for the Queen's Jubilee? Surely this is only fair. Absolutely not. There's no comparison between the Diamond Jubilee of our sovereign uh, in the United Kingdom and some foreign grubby failed rebellion a uh, hundred years ago in some other place. Jim, because of, you already celebrate something that happened in a foreign country called the Battle of the Boyne. <laughs> Right, okay, so anyway... That is such a gem. <laughs> that That's brilliant. Anyway, let's come back to it very, very briefly. Shinners, clearly the party of the moment. Unionists in the North need to figure out that they share an island with people, and that island is not Britain. That island is Ireland. And yeah. this, they have to get that into their heads, and it's going to take a long negotiation, etc. But the interesting thing you think about the Shinners in power, let's just link the Shinners in power to what we were saying about interest rates there, John. Yeah. The rise in interest rates will be periodical and long if we're into this new phase, right? It may not necessarily have bitten by the time the Shinners fight the election, our general election in the Republic in two years' time. But there is a vista, and it's along the following lines, and this is why it's very important for the Shinners to be aware of interest rates, right? Interest rates are the one piece of public policy that members of the Eurozone cannot affect, right? So mm. it's out of our control. Yeah. And there is a vista, which is Sinn Féin do really well in the north. They do really well in the south. They promise homes for everybody. They promise to get rid of corruption. They promise a whole new economic model, right? They get into power just when interest rates are beginning to rise. And within the first two years of their government, they're looking at real interest rates of 4 or 5%, mortgage rates of 8%, lending collapsing, the housing market going into a tailspin. And it could well be that interest rates are more consequential for the near and medium term future of Sinn Féin than the unionists have ever been. Whoa, Jesus. Well, I tell you, there's plenty of new material there for old Bruce to get stuck into. Actually, speaking of new material, John, Lucy's got a new track out Here it is, let's play out with it. It's called The Woman In Me. Ten green bottles on the floor Broken like my good intentions from the night before I don't know It's just a woman in me yeah. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, welcome to the Next Wave podcast. Consider us your chief AI officer in your business. My name is Matt Wolf. I have the number one YouTube channel in the AI space. I also run futuretools.com and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Lands, founder of lore.com. We want to bring you the latest AI news and trends, show you how you can use AI in your business and personal life and help make it super easy for you to understand and execute. We're going to equip you with the knowledge to thrive in this upcoming wave of change. 